those residents that live in the homes that we provided are living there because they want to go to the hi-fi, because they want to go eat at the restaurants, because they want to be in an urban, walkable environment, because they want to go out on First Friday and see cool things. That's it. They can go live anywhere and do their job. And if the pandemic has shown us anything, is that is absolutely true. They can go live in a farm in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to Craig Von Dalen, architect, real estate developer, and Indianapolis community leader. We talked to Craig about his life, his efforts to improve the built environment, and his ambitions for Indianapolis on this episode of Michael Loves Indy. Hi friends, welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. Back after a hiatus of a little bit of travel and finishing some projects this summer, but it's good to be back on the podcast. This episode features a conversation with someone who's been a friend of mine for over a decade. His name's Craig Von Dalen. He is an architect. He's a real estate developer. He's a community leader here in Indianapolis. His companies include the architecture firm Blackline Studios and also Dalen Realty, his real estate company. Craig is responsible for designing and developing some of our best-known mixed-use projects in Indianapolis, including the Murphy Building in Fountain Square, the historic building and its redevelopment, the Hinge Building, the Ardmore opening soon in downtown Indianapolis. He's also active as a philanthropist and a supporter of the arts in Indianapolis. He's also someone who's very opinionated. He owns his own companies, and he doesn't really care what you think. And uh, he's got a lot of very specific views about the future and about Indianapolis's need to embrace change. And I think some of that comes from the fact that he's got four kids in Indianapolis and really wants Indianapolis to be a place where his children can thrive. Um, did you ever have a friendship that started out of arguments that you had with someone whom you didn't know? Because that's how uh, Craig and I got to know each other. But he's definitely someone that I reach out to often. He's making things happen that impact the future of Indianapolis. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Craig Von Dalen. So we're sitting here in your house that you designed. Yeah. And this is Arden neighborhood. Yeah, we're in uh, we're in Desirable Arden, as my neighbor Pat Lynch calls it. <laughs> and you are um, for, just for people to get a a uh, uh, kind of a view of where we are. It's a it's a very kind of open floor plan, and you've got musical instruments and records everywhere, and books and everything like that. And uh, and your your. Uh, Hi-Fi system is maybe the best I've ever seen. Would you consider yourself an audiophile? Yeah, I mean, I, that's kind of what I'm known for as my, in my friend group is the, I'm the guy that has really good stereo equipment. Yeah. And I, I started, I got into that way back in college and high school, back in SoundPro days when there was a store in Indianapolis called SoundPro and there was a guy named Marlon Zachary who was my favorite sales guy. He's passed away quite a while ago, but I got into that back then and then... Uh, Kind of got away from it when my kids were born, and then uh, during the recession, I was interested in it again, and I started collecting it at, at, at like old Macintosh equipment and buying it very inexpensively, and that was a smart move because it's worth a lot more now after the recession than it was at the time. So um, that was a good move for me, and, and I love it and just really enjoy it. I enjoy music, 
probably more than anything else and um, collecting music. And then I've, I, I, we, I have a group of friends where we get together and we listen to vinyl every, we try to every month. Um, and that's a lot of fun for me. That's like, that's my, my way to get away from things. Pretty yeah. much. So, so take us back. Your family's been in Indianapolis for your, your, your generations. No, no, no. I grew, I grew up in Fort Wayne. Is that right? Yeah, I'm originally from Fort Wayne. My family moved to Indianapolis in 1984. Okay. Um, my dad was a uh, worked for a savings and loan up in Fort Wayne, and uh, it um, was dif- had difficulty during the thrift crisis, and uh, um, it, it ended up being purchased by another another bank up in Detroit. He was offered a job there, didn't take it. Was going to take a job with the housing authority here in Indianapolis, and then in the meantime, he was hired by a company called Waterfield, and then Waterfield. Put him, gave him a job to go out and find another bank to buy, and they bought Union Federal here in Indianapolis. Wow. And he moved down here in 1984 and ran Union Federal for them up until he retired, I believe, in 2001. So, at what point in your upbringing did the kind of design architecture? Um, That's a fast, fascinating story. So, so when I was in high school, um, I was a pretty good student and uh, kind of had a choice of what I wanted to do. And my parents had gotten me a compass set um, for a drafting class that I was taking. And uh, it was $45. And I thought, man, that is a lot of money. So I felt compelled to do something with my career that included using a compass set. So I decided to go to architecture school for that reason, as opposed to go to like medical school or law school or whatever. So for that reason, and I went through architecture school, did well got out into the world of architecture and started practicing architecture and didn't really realize how much I loved architecture until Philip Johnson died. And Philip Johnson died, and in his, I read his obituary, and it's like he worked up until three months before he passed away. He kept a table at Four Seasons every day and where he would invite guests to eat, eat lunch with them every day. So we had a regular lunch crowd that were just groups of friends like Andy Warhol and all these cool people, and I'm like, Man, it's pretty cool being an architect, and that's why I'm like, yeah, I really enjoy it. It's a good, it's a good gig. It's a good gig to have. And your your brother um, Todd is obviously you know a, a business partner. Did you have? Did you? Are there other family members that followed you into? Uh, and, and and by the way, I know you and Todd do some different complementary things. You know, yeah, we'll, we'll get yeah, into he's that. He's an but, entrepreneurial but yeah. guy, but uh, yeah. So my uh, um, my daughter actually went to architecture. She just finished up architecture school at Ball State. Oh wow. So uh, she, she decided to go into architecture. And then from a real estate side, my son graduated from Wabash and took a job at J.P. Morgan, but he has since migrated over. He's working at Vallejo now. So he's doing oh, yeah. like um, uh, underwriting for real estate projects. Oh, great. So. And, and did you, at that time, you know, so I guess growing up at least since 84 in Indianapolis, pursuing architecture, at that time, did you see yourself as coming back to Indianapolis? Uh, no, I actually, when I graduated, I, I went and worked in, uh, for a, a firm called Covert Hawkins down in, in Jeffersonville, Indiana. Now, I did stay in the state, and I felt compelled to stay in the state because I went to Ball State on a full um, scholarship for my tuition. So I kind of stayed in the state, and I went down there to work because actually that's where I could get a job. When I graduated in 1990, we were in a mild recession, and there weren't a lot of architecture jobs out there. And a guy named Kevin Cooper, who I think you probably know, He's at Axis. Yeah. He had been offered a job at Covert Hawkins and turned them down because I think he got picked up at CSO. And that's where I did my original internship at CSO. And uh, so he gave me their card. He says, call these guys. They're looking for somebody. 
So I, I took, I went down there, interviewed, they gave me, the, they offered me a job. I said, okay, cool, I'll come down here and work. So I worked there and actually, they brought me in as the young gun at the time and I learned how to uh, operate um, computer automated um, digital software. So that was during the transition period between when we drew things and then we started putting them in the computer. So they sat me down at a desk and put a Macintosh in front of me and said, here, learn how to do this and then teach us. So that's what I did. So I learned how to use, uh, at the time it was a software called Architrion, which was the first 3D um, solids modeling program used in the architectural industry. And I got to be really good at it. So I was, I, I, that's kind of what my specialty was. Wow. Um, and then uh, in 1993, my dad wanted to start a family business and my brother who has a degree in entrepreneurial, dis entrepreneurial business did not have the guts to do it. So I said, I'll do it. So I came back and moved back to Indianapolis and started a home building company. Oh, wow. Because um, he said, home building's easy. Everybody can do that. So I'll give you money. You can start a home building business. That was a learning experience, to say the least. Um, so I worked for about a year for a firm here in town, and then I broke out on my own and stopped getting paid for about three or four months and started building houses. Um, home building is an incredibly efficient industry in Indianapolis, so you don't make a lot of money doing it. And a lot of the people that are doing it don't know they're not making a lot of money doing yeah. it. And, and uh, I got, uh, we got to, at a certain point, I, I hired my brother to come in because what he is good at is managing things. He is very good at managing. He's tenacious. He's good at that last 7% of a project. Yep. And, and a guy like me needs somebody like that. So he came in and he started managing our projects for the construction company. We started to really figure it out. We started doing really nice i mean we were one of the best builders on the north side and we were doing like a typical four thousand square foot house that was oh well over a million dollars i mean really nice construction we had our own framing crew and our own trim carpenters who were really good and then the recession hit <laughs> and, and i i just at that time i i was like tired of doing that tired of dealing with emotion because when you build somebody's home yep you're dealing with their emotions constantly. This would have been 01, so you had been, uh, you had been at it for yeah. So this years. was yeah. This we started in '93. We went all the way th up until 0405. and then that's when I said I don't want to build things for anybody else anymore. Let's build stuff for ourselves. Yep. And in 05, we found a building in Fletcher Place that was for sale, and had a basketball floor on the second floor. And Scott Perkins goes, "You got to see this, man. They'd be great for our office. Can you imagine having a basketball floor in our office?" Because Perkins is a big basket. He loves basketball. Yeah. So we went and looked at it. It happened to be the building where Fletcher Place Loss is now. And we, went to, we looked at it, and we went to lunch, and Scott Perkins drew up some plans on a napkin and, and uh, got it all done. And I went, and, and I said, okay, let's do this project. I like the neighborhood. I like the building. And we, we started the project. I, I basically mortgaged my home. I mean, literally mortgaged my home. And then uh, um, he, uh, uh, we came up with all the drawings, and I borrowed a huge amount of money that I probably shouldn't have, and we developed it into eight apartments and then an office in the, in the, main, the basement level. And what's funny is we're, we're building it out, and I'm walking through it, and the carpenters are putting two-by-fours up and everything, and Scott Perkins and I are walking through, and he looked at me. He goes, hey, man, this, this may actually work. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm really out on a limb here. Thanks, Scott. So. And then, and this this was were you doing this as because I know Blackline is yep. as your studio Dalen Realty. This was which, this was I, I was doing as Dalen Realty. Dalen Realty. Yeah, that's okay. when we. Okay. Yeah, we were we kind of did it on the uh, as we were building the houses. We did this, and then the idea was to sell the units as condominiums, and then they would be rental properties. 
Um, and then the recession hit, and it, I, you know, there was a time when the bank was calling and saying, well, we're going to come get your home and all that stuff. So around 2009, 2010, it was really kind of desperate, um, but uh, we just kept plugging away. Yeah. Um, and, and proposed projects like we did a project across the street called Fletcher Place Terrace, which we built with my, my dad was generous enough to give us the money to build. So that had 11 apartments and a 2,000 square foot office space. And I'll tell you what, the one thing that was wonderful about the whole thing is it was never unleased. I mean, as much as it was a difficult process and we didn't, you know, the banks were calling because they had only given me a two year loan and there was no permanent financing. There was no such thing as permanent financing during the, during the recession. But the property was always leased. We yeah. never did not, you know, Todd did a great job keeping them occupied. So um, during the end of the tail end of the recession, we got the ability to buy them what was the Mail of Indy property where Hinge is. And that's when we did Hinge. And Hinge was our first big project that out, coming out of the recession. And we basically gathered all the cash that our family had. And we put all the cash that we had into that project I mean, it was a heck of a gamble because we, we were going to, we could do it in phases, but the bank would only lend us enough money to build the apartments. So we threw all the cash we had in it and really went out on a limb on that project and it leased up in like six months. So what's, what's interesting to me is, cause this is filling in some gaps that, mm-hmm. that, I, that cause I, I think I know, um, a, a good amount of your life, but this is filling in some real gaps and that is you having owned a home building company somewhere along the line it's it seems like you made a decision that i'm i'm not gonna you probably could have spent a lot of time in more suburban environments and made a lot of money at some point it seems like you're deciding i'm going to focus in these urban neighborhoods historic neighborhoods and you're taking on the kinds of projects that from my experience are of a higher complexity when was that was that something that just happened or was that a was that an intent was that a no it was calculated yeah Uh, so in the at in the, at the beginning of the recession, like 2004, 2005, I was involved in Baggy and was going to fo- focus groups to, that were talking about the future of housing. The Builders Association. Yeah, the Bil- yeah. yeah, yeah. Builders Association of Greater Indianapolis. And, and w- what was interesting in the focus groups is we, they'd gather you know, 12 random people around a table and they'd start talking about what was important to them in housing. And up until the, the early 2000s, people, you know, the number one most important thing in housing was how, how's the school system? You know, what kind of school system is in the, in the community? That was critically important to everybody. Well, that changed in the early 2000s. And instead, people were going, you know, really what I want to do is walk. I want to be able to walk from my home to a place to eat, to grab some flowers, to get something to eat, to have, go to a restaurant, to a grocery store. I want to actually physically walk. I really don't want to be in my car all the time. And what, what we did, what I thought about, it's like, whoa, this is huge. I mean, it was the number one deciding factor. Yep. And I thought about, like, Indianapolis. I'm like, where in Indianapolis can you actually live like that? And the time, at that time, Carmel was not doing what, you know, what Mayor Brainerd did. Brainerd's genius for what he did up there. The only places you could actually live and walk to places like that were Broad Ripple and downtown Indianapolis. Yes. And then what I then so I started looking at neighborhoods down in, in um, downtown Indianapolis. We had bought a building at two seven seven East Twelfth Street, where we put our offices, and we could walk to all kinds of stuff there, like English Ivy. Um, there was a coffee shop there. Like this is awesome. So I'm looking at neighborhoods around downtown Indianapolis, saying, where can I invest? that's walkable to the downtown area and that's a walkable community. And Fletcher Place was num- number one. And when we when we met too, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna say that, like. 
my view of everything has changed in the last 10, 11 years. You know, I had, it's just, you know, I had, I had very little, um, uh, just like background in how cities work and how neighborhoods work and things like that. And I'm still constantly learning, but I, for me, you among real estate developers, you were one of the first that was also plugged into mixed use environments in diverse neighborhoods. Like people, like in addition, so you mentioned walkability and you were kind of seeing that people desire that walkability, but you were also, and you were not afraid, you were, you were and are not afraid to get up in people's faces and talk, talk about this, that people want to live among racial and economic diversity and some of the projects that you selected as your first projects have that diverse element to them. Is that, is that something that was, was already present or is that something that no, you kind of realized? That's something you, I've grown into. Okay. Um, I have become far more sensitive to um, people that live in the urban environments like life and existence. Yeah. Based upon my experience of, of both living and working down there. And dealing with what they deal with and meeting them and having them be my friends. Yep. And and I think that's helped me grow as a person in ways that I think there's no other way to to do. And knowing knowing your your properties and where they are, I'm going to make an assumption that you're talking about black residents, um, low income white residents oh, in yeah. some neighborhoods, um, Hispanic oh, residents. Yeah. You're talking about across. It's it's different. It's a lot of different people from different life circumstances that are you know adjacent and you, you know in, in these in these mixed income areas. Yeah, you have a lot more empathy for people when they're your friends. That's right, and they're going through the things that they have to go through. That's right, and it's not because of something they did. It was because of of a, of a situation that they were either born into or they were that was thrust upon them. Yeah, and the system is very hard on people. Yes. Uh, and, 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 you know, when you're a white kid growing up in the suburbs, you have no understanding of what, it, what that is like. Yeah. You don't get it. And, and, and that's what I was. And now I have a very keen understanding of it because it was my friends and the people that I hang out with and the people that I work with and people that I love that are going through that. And, and it, you start to really understand that. And, and it, it's, it's a good understanding to come to. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and so you... you um uh, and I will get to some of your your big catalytic projects. You've mentioned a couple of them, but I don't want to I don't want to jump ahead to the Murphy Building. But it's like when I met you, it was uh, Craig Von Dalen. He redeveloped the Murphy Building. You know that that was that was a big. So what when does that happen on the timeline? Yeah, that that happened in two thousand nine. So right yeah, during the, right. the we, heart of the met. recession. Right. Yeah, the Murphy was in trouble, um, and we, me and a partner, basically came in and took that building over by taking over the debt. Yeah. Now, for some of our listeners who are like you know West Coast, some of my friends out there, can you can you describe what the Murphy Building was and represented before before you decided to? do this great historic rehab of it. Yeah. The Murphy building was a, I would call it a Frankenstein of a building. Um, it was a, a part, part, it's three different, it's actually two different buildings that are combined, bind together with a third building. Um, it, what, part of it was the old Granada theater, which was built in 1927. It was a vaudeville theater and movie house, air conditioned, big deal back then. And then the other part is the Schreiber block, which built, which was built in the 1880s, which was a five and dime store on the first floor and a nunnery on the second floor. And uh, at some, and the five and dime was a Murphy five and dime. They decided, they started expanding. Um, they took the second floor and took, you know, got rid of the nunnery. 
and then um, they bought the theater in 1950 after after World War II in 1954, converted into it into a giant G.C. Murphy store, and then combined that all together with the Schreiber block with a building that's in between them. So um, it was a basically a 56,000 square foot two story building in the heart of Fountain Square, and when I took it over, Send had already renovated it to a certain extent, and turned it into artist studios and then sold it to two artists, Ed Funk and, uh, and, and uh, Phil Campbell. And they were, are great guy, were great guys. I mean, Ed Funk has, has since passed away, but they're great guys. They just weren't really good at business. Um, and uh, when we came in, there were no leases. It was, for all intents and purposes, vacant, except for the first floor had a pizza place in it that was not really paying rent. And when it was, it was $1,000 a month. And then Ed Funk had his paper business in it. But upstairs was all these artist studios, and there's artists everywhere, but no one had a lease. And also when I took it over, we were given the keys, and it was a, a bucket of keys. Because at some point, Phil Campbell had gotten paranoid about somebody breaking in and finding things, so he took all the keys off the rings and threw them in a bucket and shook them up. So I had to literally go through and figure out what keys went where. And, uh, I mean, there's 27 tenants, at least 27 spaces of the building. We took it over in September in 2009, and I had not been in every single space in that building until sometime in November or December that year. Um, but the first thing we did is we reinitiated First Fridays. So we said, let's do First Fridays. Let's get people in this building to see local art. That's the goal. We put that all back together. We had Big Car was in the building. They were super helpful. And uh, then we, we opened a store on the first floor called Nindy Swank that put it right in the middle so it looked like the building was really occupied. And we just tried to keep First Friday going because my commitment was, hey, I think the arts are important. I think they're a catalyst to economic development. And I think they're, we want to keep that going in Fountain Square because we need it. Yep. I mean, Indianapolis needed something so, like that. So what, what, what had to happen to get to where we are today, where this historic building houses one of the best 400 capacity, I mean, music venues of its size in the country, okay? Yeah. The Heartland Film Festival, which yeah. is hosted, you know, they just moved out. But they just moved, yeah, yeah. But they did for a long time. Yeah, for ten, yeah, years, ten yeah. years. They had, you know, Rob Reiner and mm -hmm. you know Emilio Estevez came and things like that, and you know, some really good restaurants. Like what ha what had to happen in the meantime? Yeah, in the, to, in, yeah, in the meantime, I had to deal with a lot of poop. Yeah, <laughs> which we, you know, I was basically janitor, cleanup guy, leasing agent, uh, bookkeeper, everything. Um, but we. The first thing that happened was we had to get rid of the pizza place. It was just a terrible pizza place. The guy that operated was just not very friendly. Um, so we, uh, we, we, did, we asked him to start paying $1,500 a month in rent instead of 1000 He hem-hawed around and said, I just can't make it. He never paid us one penny of rent. It, so he operated for a couple months, and then he moved out on a weekend in the middle of the night. And it's interesting because he, he was too lazy to turn it. He had electric pizza ovens. And he was too, too lazy to get up early enough in the morning to turn them on on time to make lunch. So he left them on 24 hours a day. So after he moved out, our electric bill went down $400 a month. Wow. <laughs> so, so that was a win. And then I went on Facebook and uh, I sent a message to uh, Ed Rudisill. And I said, hey, man, I have a restaurant space available in the Murphy. Do you know anybody who wants to see it? And Ed Rudisill like, immediately responds to me. Yeah, I got a buddy named Wally Bollinger. He's looking for a place to, put it, to make his own restaurant. I'm like, I'll show it to him. I think I showed it to him that day or the, the next day. He signed a lease three days later, and he opened up Red Lion Grog House. Wow. So that, that was number one, and yeah. that was big, because Red Lion Grog House 
is a was a good little restaurant. Still was a good little That's restaurant. Yeah. Um, he's got a, now he's got a bar, but he doesn't really carry. He's he's all about comfort food. Yeah, and it's a great little addition. And then uh, I made a deal with Jeremy Ephraimson where that uh, I would pay half the rent if if Imoca paid half the rent. And I got them to move into the building. Yeah, so this is uh, Indianapolis philanthropist Jeremy Ephraimson and uh, Museum of Contemporary Art yeah. at Imoca. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just my deal was I'll never ask for you for you from you more than I would give myself. So we'll pay yeah. half the rent if you pay half the rent. And we got them in, and then we get. And then at the time we were letting artists take the vacant space and do installation pieces, and some of them were incredibly elaborate. Um, we had a, company, a group called Basilica do a whole setup in what is now the Heartland space. It was unbelievable. Um, but then uh, we, Heartland came along with La Margarita, and we did a, they, they signed a 10-year lease, and La Margarita did too, and they simultaneously, we built them out. Um, we had a little bit of trouble with our bank. Lisk came in and rescued us. Thank you, Lisk. And um, built those two spaces out, and then we were, it was off to the races. Yeah. Um, then we got well done marketing and then pure came in. Um, and then, um, m- the store that we opened there in swank wasn't doing well. So it ends up closing and we could, we, I helped Josh Baker, um, open his first venue on the second floor and it was the do three one seven lounge and the first band to ever play at his venue because Josh had come to me. So, you know, I'm tired of booking shows in other bars and they make all the money on the liquor and all I get is a piece of the door. I want to have my own club. Is there something we can do? So I found him a room on the second floor. I got it entitled for him to do assembly occupancy there and, and got him set up and, and basically helped him create a venue called the do 317 lounge. And then, uh, um, his first band to play was the Lumineers. Good move. Yeah, no kidding. And, uh, so he did that for a while and then Indy Swank wasn't going well, so um, we closed it down, and I leased in that space, and we turned that into the first Hi-Fi, which was a 250-cap venue, and he just, since then, I mean, it grew to now, he's twice the size. I mocha closed and went out of the building, and it, and, uh, it just keeps going. I mean, the, the outdoor venue is amazing. Yeah. Um, Trampled by Turtles played there Sunday night, and there were 850 people in the outdoor parking lot venue. It was um, unbelievable. That's awesome. He had 4,200 people through the door, I believe, this weekend. Jeez. Thank God. <laughs> I mean, that, that's we're sitting here at um, June 30th, 2021, and it's like it was, it, was such a, it was such a terrible time for music venues and restaurants, but we, we were able to basically pres- at least preserve every, every major music venue in Indianapolis. Yeah, um, now start to build more. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, we need, we need more. So, okay, when I met you, though, 2009 or 2010, I this is this is interesting because you were I don't even think you'd said hello and you were like Indianapolis is not creating enough amenities neighborhoods you know um public spaces for the creatives and you were very and Stop. I I know and I and I remember Still not. I remember but I I remember I remember this very specifically because we hadn't even met and you were just like um emphatic you know yeah. so so like was that where um, now, obviously, people listening to this are going to know that you probably came to a lot of that just through sheer hustle and trying to um, uh, invigorate Fountain Square neighborhood. But what else, what other experiences informed that viewpoint that you have? I mean, I traveled a lot. I mean, I've been pretty much around the world to a lot of places. And I'll be honest, people don't move places because of a job. Not in, not in the United States anymore. I mean, you can get a job anywhere in the United States. If you can't get a job in the United States, 
I don't know what's wrong with you. So people don't choose to move to a location because there's a job there. They choose to move to a location because they spend two-thirds of their re the rest of their life doing something besides that job. And it gets really boring without arts and entertainment. And if you don't think arts and entertainment are economic development, you need to really rethink. Because that's what makes people want to live in a city. Um, foot, football's especially, nice and basketball's yeah. nice, but arts and entertainment are all the time. Yeah. So. Especially for uh, creative workers, <laughs> R&D yeah. workers. The jobs uh, of the yeah. few. I mean, right. The honest to God truth is, is the, the days of creating a product are going away. Yeah. The product is now content. Right. And that content is either live content or it's content um, that's, to be, that's going to be streamed on the internet. So the real, the real economy going on in the future is, is that content. And, and, and as I look out on it now, I think the movie theater starts to go away in favor of live venues because you can get the movie theater here. You can, I can go in my living room and watch a movie. Um, but you can't get live entertainment. And, li and we saw that during the pandemic. It just isn't the same watching right. a live stream of a band as it is watching that band. Yep, and the experience and that the you experience have. the experience of being there. With your friends and family, yeah. right, yeah. That, that's, that's really important. And if we don't start to realize that, we're going to fall way behind the rest of the country. And I think we're already way behind. I mean, Indiana is way behind the rest of the country when it comes to um, equipping and funding the arts and entertainment industry, or for that matter, the creatives in our, in our communities. Yep. And, in, and until we do, it's, it's not going to go well. I mean, why do we have so, many fortune, so few Fortune 500 companies in, in Indiana? The number one reason is we don't, we don't encourage creativity. Creative, creatives make Fortune 500 companies. Accountants and lawyers don't make Fortune 500 companies. They support them. They don't make them. And I'll yeah. give you, like, S Steve Jobs. What was Steve Jobs' degree in college? Calligraphy. He got an arts degree. The people that start Fortune 500 companies are creatives. Yep. And we need to do whatever we can to encourage them. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not debating you because I agree with everything you've said, and, and I'll say, and yet. And this is, this is a bit, yeah, well, it's like, and this is the reason I'm even doing this show, is there's still... Let's talk about ways that Indianapolis, now I'm talking about the city of Indianapolis, is very competitive. The private sector R&D that's happening in Indianapolis blows away many of our competitors. We don't talk, talk about it enough, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we can't be complacent and think that it's always going to be here, right? But yeah. you still have a concentration, and these are a lot of the people who are living in your oh, yeah. apartments, yeah. going to your music venues, um, the strength of our life sciences, you know, the strength of our, particularly the marketing tech sector, things like that. And I think um, we can't, and I, I think you and I, one of the things you and I have in common, we don't, is we're always trying to urge people, don't get complacent because Indianapolis could lose that to the extent that we have strengths, we could, we could lose that. So how do you, how do you balance kind of what, what, what I hear from you more than anything is really a sense of urgency to embrace change, to embrace the, embrace the future is that yeah, a because the reason we would lose that is those people that live in my community the, the those residents that live in the homes that we provided are living there because they want to go to the hi-fi because they want to go eat at the restaurants because they want to be in an urban walkable environment because they want to go out on first friday and see cool things 
That's it. I mean, they, the, if we don't encourage that, they can go live anywhere and do their job. Yep. And if the pandemic has shown us anything, is that is absolutely true. They can go live in a farm in the middle of nowhere right. and do their job. Right. So if we're going to keep attracting them and want them to li- live here, we've got to provide the amenity that they're looking for. So in a, it's a, like a hypothetical conversation. Somebody's talking to you at a cocktail party, and they're like, yeah, Craig, I hear what you're saying, but you know, we're not going to be San Francisco. We're not going to be, and where, 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 I'm, where I'm going with this is, so you've got, I don't want to, you know, so your oldest son, right, is in finance, and he's chosen to be in Indianapolis. He yeah, could he live. Going, he wanted to live in New York. Okay, he yeah. could, but he could live a lot of different places, yeah. right? I I find myself arguing sometimes that no 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 we don't we're not we're not aiming to be San Francisco there's a sweet spot okay no, we can be better go for it and you're right we can be I better hear, yeah I want to hear because why. have you looked for an apartment in San Francisco right. lately right uh, close to my name be Petticord she's got a place there I think she's paying some crazy amount of month in rent. yeah right um, Ben Jones another close friend of mine lives in in uh, Oakland he, he for what he is paying in rent he could have a multi or you yep. know a million dollar plus home here so it's like it's almost like it's a what you're talking about is sense of urgency in getting better at these arts arts and entertainment mixed use environments mixed income environments there's a there's I'm gonna, there's an accessibility of Indianapolis that, oh, yeah. we, that we could turn into a, a strength. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mario's done a great job with the airport. Yeah. We, we, I can fly to it, just about anywhere pretty darn quickly from Indianapolis. Yeah. And not only that, I can go to the airport and park. I can get out of my car. I can get on an airplane, and it's easy. There, there, it's, it's a, to me, the Indianapolis airport is one of the easiest airports to get in and out of that I've ever been to. And, and it's, we're centrally located. You can get places fast. And if we have, you know, when you're in an urban environment like San Francisco where it's, you know, it's hilly, but it's still, you still feel the same. I mean, you go to downtown Indianapolis in Fountain Square, it feels a lot like Brooklyn. Because once you're in a compact urban environment that's walkable and you got good restaurants, and frankly, we've got some places, Aaron Wren said it, we've got some Amelia, Amelia's Bread Place. Yeah. It's as good as any place in New York. Once you're in that neighborhood, you might as well be in New York. Yeah. And once you couple that with the, the accessibility we have with our airport and interstate systems and our location, you can go anywhere you want from here. Yeah. So I'm going to bring up, I'm going to bring up some, some controversy. This is kind of like, hope, I, think, I think this experience strengthened our friendship, at least I hope. So <laughs> okay. you and I didn't know each other very well. Yeah, I know. And when the cultural trail was going in, yeah. you'd get very upset. Now, for good reason, right? There were there were delays, you know, they'd uncover stuff. But then, you know, I was I was working in the mayor's office and I'd get amped up all the time. And now I realize I'm glad we're having this conversation because I did not appreciate the sheer amount of capital you had exposed. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, your family. We were really right? exposed. You were really exposed. Yeah. But you know, you'd call me and complain and I'd just be like, F you, Craig, and we'd go on to But 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 out out of that, I think what what did what what did that experience? So the Indianapolis Cultural Trail again for our you know for anybody listening, especially like my West Coast family, is it's a wonderful um, uh, mixed kind of trail, multimodal trail that goes through over eight miles of the city. They're going to expand it, and many of the properties that Craig has developed and redeveloped happen to be on the trail or in proximity. So what do you what do you remember? about going through that experience of this, this thing being built, but not just, the, not just the good parts, but, I mean, the frustrations of it, too. Well, I mean, first of all, the cultural trail is a game changer. 
I mean, it, it made a huge difference for Fountain Square because it created this comfortable way to walk from downtown Indianapolis into Fountain Square. I mean, after it was done, we would get people going to conventions that just would wander down to Fountain Square. Right. I mean, that never happened prior to the Cultural Trail. So, and Brian Payne did a great job with that. The Cultural Trail was great. The engineering, the engineers who work at the Department of Public Works who have worked there for 40 or 50 years and the general contractors that they used to build the Cultural Trail were not so great. Um, that was, my beef was nothing, had nothing to do with Brian Payne and the Cultural Trail. It had everything to do with the people that were put in place that were building it and the engineers at the city of Indianapolis who didn't understand it, who were administering it, and, and, the, this, and I don't know if it was the contractor who made the decision or those engineers who made the decision to pull the, their, their crews off of the cultural trail and work on a repaving job on North Meridian Street instead and leave us with no sidewalks in Fountain Square for eight weeks in front of retail businesses that were struggling anyway. And that was, a, that was an abomination. And it should have never happened. Um, I mean, it got so bad, the weeds were three or four feet high in front of retail stores in Fountain Square that were growing on what was supposed to be sidewalks. Yeah. That, that was my problem. And, and, and I'm not, and I won't name names because I've got some. Well, um, and I remember, I remember this. Terrible. I, I was, and again, I didn't, I didn't have all this um, appreciation for everything you had at risk at the time, but I remember, <laughs> everything. I remember, I, I remember you, you'd gotten very upset with, with the mayor's office and I worked for the mayor's office. You'd gotten upset, Brian Payne. And I remember, and I remember saying to Brian Payne, I'm never talking to Craig Von Dalen again. And Brian, and Brian's like, yeah, me neither. Nine, nine months, nine months <laughs> later, ribbon cutting hinge. Nine, nine, nine months later, we were at the ribbon cutting of the hinge building and Brian and I were like, yeah, I remember when we said we'd never talk with Craig again. Yeah, that didn't last very long. But, you know, um, but I mean, today, and I guess, and I'm not looking for, you know, over just kind of your accurate read. So now, you know, a decade-ish later after the, the cultural trail, um, you know, what do, what do you think, you know, so you got through, you, we, you know, the, we, we got through some unexpected, whatever, the um, mm -hmm. uh, delays and things like that. But today you now have a number of properties that are either on it yeah. or in close proximity. <laughs> yeah. So what's oh, your... Game what's changer. I mean, really? yeah, yeah, I mean... Uh, okay, that that was huge because it made it a comfortable experience walking and, and riding your bike through Indianapolis. It, it was a game changer. I mean, it honestly was one of probably, and my brother would even say this, best economic development project the city of Indianapolis may have ever done. Wow. Um, now, the other thing is the red line, which is nice, and it's like they positioned the red line so it, dry, it goes by every single property I've ever developed. Yeah. <laughs> that's always nice. Yeah. I think that's the next big thing, honestly. But yeah, the, the cultural trail, best economic development project the city of Indianapolis has ever done. Yeah. It really is. I mean, it's, and, and I hate to give Kevin Osborne a lot of credit because I, you know, he's a classmate of mine or everything, but yeah, they did a good job with that. And Brian Payne's a genius. He really is. So. They got it. They got it done. And I, I didn't, I don't want to I didn't get it at the time. I, I didn't know enough to oppose it, but I remember mm -hmm. thinking, oh, okay. But not, didn't really fully grasp it, you know, when I first heard about it until it started being constructed. I, I had a pretty good understanding. So I was, I was on the Greenways Committee. Goldsmith appointed me to the Greenways Committee back in 94 or 5, maybe 6. And I was, in fact, I was the chairman of the design committee for the Greenways Committee. So we did the Monon. And I had a, and Ray Irvin was in charge at that time, and he instilled an understanding of the linear park and how it works and how people want to exercise. 
And that gave me a pretty good insight and understanding of what the concept of the cultural trail was. And I think that was helpful. Yeah. You know, this is funny because again, you're like, like all of us, you have, you're, you're, you're multi-layered because mm-hmm. like you are somebody who, um, who urges, you know, the community and public officials to pursue a very high standard when it comes to projects and design and things like that. And I think that's good. Mm-hmm. But so you, I never would have known that you have served on Board of Zoning Appeals for many years. I never would have known <laughs> yeah. that you're on the Greenways. Like, so it's like you've got this kind of persona that's like very like aggressive, but then yeah. you've obviously you've 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 been involved in public service really in yeah. the weeds of this stuff for a long time. Is yeah, that, I've been, yeah, I always have felt like I should give back. Um, that's why I do I do the BZA for two reasons: to give back to the community and to get that card, so I don't have to get searched going <laughs> into the city county building. Um, but I'm good. I think I'm good at it. They like me. Um, I, I, I try to be very fair. I'm very, very understanding. I try to I run a, a clean shop. I think it's, it's very important that, that everybody gets the right to be heard. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I run a pretty good BZA. I learned that from Joanna Taft. She's very good as well. Yeah. So, okay. So I never, I never thought about this before. So you, you strike me with your background as somebody I could see, I could see the architects being like, well, Craig's actually a real estate developer. And then I can see the real estate developers being like, well, you know, Craig's actually an artiste. He's actually, you know what I mean? Good. So you, st- you kind of, do you kind of feel like, do you kind of have to straddle yeah, both yeah. worlds? I mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm just as adept at, 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 at SketchUp, AutoCAD, and, and Revit as I am at Excel. And I think that uh, I consider myself a rena- renaissance man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and frankly... Uh, That's pretty rare though, right? Because I don't know... Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't. You may be the only architect I know who runs a, a development company. Um, yeah, there. I think there's more that would want to because they think it's hugely profitable, but it also can be hugely disastrous. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the other thing is, when I was building houses, I did all. I did a lot of the work myself. So, like in this house, I installed all the cabinetry. I did most of the trim work. I did a lot of the electrical work. I did the design. I did m- some of the framing because it was technical, and the guys that were framing it couldn't do it. Um, I literally could do everything in the construction world um, with the exception of I can't change out an HVAC unit because I don't have an EPA card or a license. But I can do everything. If I could clone myself, I could, you know, four times, I could build a house myself. So what, what, parts, what parts are satisfying for you at that? Because it seems like, Ooh. that seems like a lot of time. It build, is, yeah. Building, building technical knowledge. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. It, it, the wonderful thing about having that technical knowledge and understanding of how to do those things is it translates very well into how to, build, how to draw the instructions for how to do them. Because basically what an architect does is he draws the instructions for how to build a building. And if I know how not only, and I know what the materials are, but if I know how the processes work to build that building, I can draw those drawings in a way that the person doing the work can understand them better. And that means... I can do a better job of transmitting my design intent to the guys with your the, the guys' hands yep. who are actually building them, and I think it's made me a far better designer and an architect and developer. Last time, last time I was in your house, it, it was here here at your house. It was um, it was a little bit before COVID. It, okay. was a, it was a really icy night. We were just listening to music. Oh, okay. Um, I remember. Okay, now I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, uh, you you said something to the effect of um I'm, I'm trying to remember basically like we kind of needed a term other than real estate developer you know we need a different 
you know, a different vernacular or something like that to really describe it. And then you went into something I've heard you talk about before, which is shelter. It's a basic human need. We don't yeah. talk enough about it. Yeah. Can you, can, I don't know if you remember that, yeah, but can like, you expand? Yeah. Here's the deal. The, the, I think, yeah, that was back when I was writing a, a speech, and, I, and I've since forgotten the speech, but it's like you can survive for three days without water and like 30 days without food, but you can't survive for much more than a night without shelter. I mean, shelter is a, pri- you know, as much as we talk about water and food, shelter is really, really critical to survival. And if you don't want to, and the other thing, and we're seeing this down in Miami right now, safe shelter is really important too. Um, so you need a place where you can go and you can stay warm, dry, and safe. And if you don't have that, you're not going to live very long. So as much as we want to malign architects and the people that create buildings and everything, those things are really, really important to us. Um, and we need to make sure we're, we, we have them available to us and that we have good, safe, with COVID, healthy shelter for us to live in in order to be able to survive. Especially as we sit here in 2021, there's a, um, uh, when people talk about real estate development, especially in growing markets, there's a, um, I'll just say it, there's a, there's a, there's a gentrification perception issue that it's very important because words have meaning and, and things like that. Now, sometimes people will say gentrification, but they're actually talking about something else. Okay. So, 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 um, I, I've, I feel like, um, now I say this as a business guy who, who my day job is a business organization, developers oftentimes get maligned unfairly and people in communities don't realize what a high risk business this is. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's easy, it's easy to cast a developer as kind of the bloodthirsty capitalist coming in to gentrify this neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me also say that in 2021, we're all, I think a lot of us are also learning that no, yeah, community input is going to be hugely important wherever you go. You got to have it. You know what I mean? Cause, because that, that is, I think some developers who are not as scrupulous who go in and they don't seek any community input, give, I think, give the industry a bad name. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, we, we always like, even in Fletcher place, we would always go to the community first and ask them what they need or what they want. Um, we may come up with something a little different, um, but there's a reason for that because we've got some knowledge that maybe they don't have. So we've got to go back to them and explain to them this is what we, we think we should really do, and here's why. Yeah. Um, the the uh, the, the yeah, there are a lot of and one of the things that drives development that I think is unfortunate and that that creates these situations where the developer seems evil is the investment community behind them. Um, it's not necessarily the developer that's bad, but when a developer, in order to develop, has to go out and seek equity from investors who demand returns higher than 20%, which, by the way, in the Bible is usury rates. And if you want a return higher than 20%, you are a user. You're, that's usury. So I, I have a problem with that. Um, I don't mind if I invest or if it, take my own money and I do something and I make more money than... 20% because that's retail. That's like me doing something. But if you're going to go loan your money to somebody else and you demand a higher rate of return than 20%, I'm beginning to wonder what your real motivations are. Yeah. And then the developers that utilize that type of capital have, are more par- particularly um, interested in profit because they've got to service that than they are in actually creating community. 
Yeah. Um, and your and your model is you'll develop things to manage them and own them for oh yeah. a long, we, long time. I'm more yeah. particularly interested in creating community. I don't I, I don't want in fact I we, we have people come to us all the time that want to invest. And I've got investors, I can count them on both of my hands. That's it. And because I don't want to go out there and seek really expensive capital to develop projects at the expense of creating a community. And, and I feel better about investing in a community and have been way more successful investing in creating a community that is inclusive and that is, that is happy, that has a lot of amenities, that is a great place for anybody of any identification to live. That's where I'm happy, and I think that's, that's what I want to continue to do. I, I, I do not want to do this because I've got to serve as a debt. I'm more particularly interested in being involved in being part of a community. So what would, um, I'm, I'm thinking of young, like a, a, a young person who is active in their community or a young person who's working in government, mm-hmm. what, what do you wish they knew or what, would, what knowledge would you impart to them as they, if they want to um, engage, let's say, good real estate developers who are doing it for the right reasons with the right long-term goals? Like how, what advice would you find yourself giving to young people saying, hey, if you want to make something happen in your community, what, what, what types of things come to mind? It's find somebody in the community. I mean, a lot of times that that may be a better move than like going outside of the community. But see if you can find somebody in the community that has capital, that cares about that community, that wants to invest in that community, that has good ideas, or is willing to bring. I mean, I would go. I'll I'll consult and help other people with ideas. Um, I, I, it, I, I would be very much willing to do that, but find somebody in your community. The problem is, is they go outside of the community and they, 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 then they get into that roped into that situation where they're dealing with people that are servicing a debt and they've got to do something. Now we have been, one thing we've been really lucky with in Indianapolis is we've got a developer here in town who is from out of town, who is very willing to spend a lot of money in the city. And I'm not going to name names, but they did a really cool project on the northwest side of downtown Indianapolis called Bottle Works. And they spent a lot of money, and they didn't ask for a lot from the city, and they did a great job. And that place is fantastic. It's a little, the parking's a little expensive. But other than that, yeah. man, it's cool. It's awesome. So we've been lucky from that yeah. standpoint. But I think that's because we're a regional city. And we've attracted them from out of town because they they don't they're not from a regional city. That's right. Um, you know, so there there is that you know there's always that that, that unicorn, right? Um, but yeah, it's you just you look for people that care more about the the community. Okay, and here's a little example. So if I were to go to a neighborhood association meeting or a merchants association meeting in a community that I was wanting to do a project in to present my project. I would not just go in and present my project and then leave. I would stay for the whole meeting. People, it just, and as a guy who ran a merchants association, has been part of a neighborhood association, the people that just come in and present their project and barely there for a minute and then they leave, it's pretty obvious that they don't really care about the community. That's a pretty good indicator. Um, I, I would, I'd stay for the whole meeting. In fact, if I'm going to do something in a neighborhood, I probably would show up for a few neighborhood meetings before or even after that just to see what's going on because I care about the community. It's, it's not that difficult to tell when somebody cares or doesn't care about your community. 
Um, we had a neighbor, we had a developer come in and give a presentation at Fletcher Place one time, and he never even took the sunglasses off the top of his head to give his presentation. Did his presentation, asked questions, and then bolted out the door. Um, I don't know if he had someplace to go. Maybe. But the reality is he didn't really give off the appearance that he cared about the neighborhood. And I think that is something that will become, it's, it's obvious. I mean, you can tell when people care or don't care. Um, and I think it's probably, that's my best advice. Just recognize whether or not they really care. Yeah. Um, the, this, I, I pretty much shy away from politics on this show, and yet you and I have talked about this a lot, and I want to I I tee this up. I, I think it's really important without calling out any individual, but it's almost like, it's like in a place like Indianapolis, we have to thread a bit of a needle because the state politics have become much more conservative, but a lot of other states too have, have as well. So it's like, you know, oh, yeah. it's like, you it's know, not just it's us. not just us. Right. But it's yeah. like, but you're, you're also somebody politically, you can't really put in a box. You know what I mean? Like myself, I mean, you have some, I have some speaking for myself, I have some views that are more conservative, some views that are more liberal. Mm-hmm. My views on other, some things are evolving all the time. Um, and you've also, you know, you've 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 done these you've done these big catalytic projects but obviously you've also invested the time you do doing a lot of service you need a lot of service uh, you know to your neighborhoods and on you know board of zoning appeals and things like that but how how can how can the leadership of indianapolis best navigate the politics of this of this time what comes to mind um since we're gonna talk about politicians first i want to say something i have a tremendous amount of respect for politicians or for that matter anybody that is elected to an office or serves the, in some capacity to the community who is honest, straightforward, and decent human being. And we just lost one yesterday. Terry Curry passed away yesterday. Yeah. And yeah. he was. He yeah. was a decent human being. No one could say a bad thing about that That's guy. right. Yeah. And he was honest and just a wonderful human. And Great. I think that's what I like. Great prosecutor. Um, yeah. yeah. As far as what, yeah. what we could look for or in this whole dynamic with the state of Indiana, it would be nice if we had a lot more decent human beings. Because I don't hear a lot of honesty coming out of the state house, And I don't see a lot of honesty coming out of the state house. When's the last time they did a fiscal policy analysis of how many tax dollars go from one county to another county? It's been, ten, it's been more than 10 years. And I can tell you right now, it's not gotten any better. And Marion County is a donor county to the rest of the, the state of Indiana. Not just in property taxes. First of all, we don't get any of our sales tax. None of our gas tax. A third of our taxes are going out to the rest of the state. And then we have legislators who drive into Indianapolis and complain about the quality of our roads. Um, how about we just had some honesty about yeah. fiscal policy in the state of Indiana? This is one. You know, I'm going to follow up because you're, you're on a short list of people. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign you up for something. <laughs> like myself and Mark Fisher, shout out to Mark Fisher, would, yeah. love, would love to have you have some, more, have some direct dialogue with some of these officials. Because, again, because you're somebody who's put your dollars at risk to make these neighborhoods better, but you're also not, you're, you're not a liberal Democrat straight ticket. You yeah. know what I mean? You're all over the map. I was you a know? Republican for a while. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At one point I was a Republican. Yeah. But then I got like, what the heck? You know, it, yeah. it just, it, it's, it's not, you know, don't tell, you know, Republicans are supposed to be libertarian. They're supposed to be about limited government, right? Entrepreneurship, and, and entrepreneurship, yeah. Why do they have so much interest in telling me what I can do with my body or in my bedroom? 
What the heck? And it, give me a break. I don't, first of all, that shouldn't even be a matter of discussion. But then going back, it's like, yeah, let's just, fiscal policy, how about we get to keep our money, you get to keep your money, and everybody's happy. Yeah. That's not how it's working. So my, my views on the fiscal policy, it's interesting, are shifting a little bit because, as you know, I spend a tremendous amount of time in my job now well, trying to broker a lot of broker a lot more common ground between Indianapolis and suburbs, oh, right? Yeah. yeah. And I I, I want to test this with you. You might say, no, this is stupid, but um, I could foresee a a future of Indianapolis where we get downtown thriving again, but then Fishers is another node, Carmel is another node. You know, you get the you know. Um, you get other other communities like like the term multiple centers of gravity. That's some certainly something that has helped Austin, Texas thrive, right? Oh yeah, and and that's just a, that's a testament. I mean, it, Carmel Brainerd was into walkability, got into it right about after I did. I think he, he's done a great job. Traffic circles. He was heavily into traffic circles because they save energy and they save gas and they save emissions. Um, he's done a, as much as I hate to admit it, he's done a great job. And that community has really become a cool, walkable community. But if you look at it from a scale standpoint, he isn't even close to what Indianapolis can be. I mean, he, you, you, you can walk, you know, to and fro the, the walkable part of, of Carmel pretty quickly. Um, Indianapolis has a lot of density and a lot more potential than Carmel does. And some some of our some of our elected officials and also people who just work in government, it's like I wanna I wanna um, I feel like a lot of people don't see those strengths mm-hmm. of Indy. Yeah, you know you know. Um, so yeah, I could see your note. So fi- Carmel definitely Fishers yeah. is emerging. I yeah, mean yeah. they've still wow. I man that. That's a tra- traffic nightmare. There's a lot going on up there. It gets really, really congested. Um, they're doing their best. I, I, I can remember having a meeting with the mayor up there and saying, man, you guys really need to get behind the concept of the green line, you know, the tr- um, the, um, and yeah. he didn't do it. I, I think that could have been a game changer for them. Had they, had they pressed forward on that and actually had a rapid transit line from Fishers to downtown Indianapolis, that could have been, that could have been, that could have catapulted them past Carmel. And, and I really wish they would still rethink that because they could be a node. Um, Zionsville could be even a small node. Um, although there's some Zionsville, Zionsville. Um, but yeah, I mean, all the, all the out, outer communities have this aspiration to be one of those urban nodes yeah. now. Yeah. Um, you've been very generous with your time, but I don't want to, I don't want to end this. We're going to have to have a part two because we're getting into too many Sure. Do things, but I want I want to ask you to talk more about music and a couple things. You right. know, it, obviously it's a huge part of your life, but you also are a huge proponent of creating more music venues in more oh, places yeah. because kind of seeing the future of these creating these you know communal experiences for people right. around around the arts. So can you can could I ask you about how your obsessive love of music informs? You know your 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 uh, design work and also your view of community and things yeah. like that. Well, music and design are really well connected, anyways. It's you know design is about rhythm and tempo and and different types of color and all that types of things and and they're really entwined. I mean, you can design based upon your inspiration from music. Absolutely. Um, but it goes. It keeps going back to the create. We need to. 
it is so much more colorful in our world with music. Can you imagine what it would be like without music? Um, I, I get together the, my two closest friends in the world, Jeb Banner, Vess Rutenberg. Vess is a professional musician. Jeb is, runs a company called Boardable, but he's always played music. We, I help them make music. I, I, I play the bass. I'm not very good. But I help them make music, and it is the thing in my life that centers and grounds me and makes me a better person. Um, being able to do that, learning how to do that, being with those two people, and actually at, we get together every Tuesday, we do this thing where we cry, try to create, they try to create a song, I help them do it. There's other people, like Andy Fry gets involved, he was, he was with us last weekend, Jordan Munson, there's a whole group of us that do this. And it is, uh, first of all, it's incredibly good therapy. Um, and second of all, it is an outlet for creativity that's really important. But the other thing is, is, I can't believe that I'm the only person that would be interested in that. And I think other people would are interested in it too, and interested in being able to see live music, as we saw, saw at the Hi-Fi this weekend. People want to get out, they want to experience this, they want to see the show, they want to be, and, and a lot of them just want to even be part of the show. Yeah. And the more opportunity we can give people to do that, the more it makes them want to be in a community and it makes them want to get out and do things. And, and that's what's important. And there's a, and, and this has been on this show, you know, Carrington Clinton and oh, Rob yeah. Dixon and stuff. It's like, there's a, yeah. there's a musical heritage of Indianapolis that yeah. we don't talk about enough. Jazz. Oh my God. Yeah. Bluegrass. We, we, yeah. we right. decimated the most, probably the most vibrant jazz scene in the United States of America was in Indianapolis on Indiana Avenue. Destroyed. Um, totally forgotten. Um, can't blame anything but racism, frankly. It, it was terrible. Um, we have great musicians in this city. We had a culture and a legacy of great musicians in this city. We could be the jazz community, the jazz city in the, in the United States of America over New Orleans yep. or St. Louis, and we threw it away in the name of what? Yeah. I don't know, a university maybe, but that didn't, yeah, I don't know. But that, that you, and that goes back to economic development. Economic development is all about the arts. It, anybody in the United States of America, you can live and get a job anywhere. And now what we need to do is attract people, high wage earners or even not, just people that are interested in creativity to this state by giving them this outlet for creativity and the ability to be able to see shows see art there there can be nothing more important than that right now and is it fair to say i don't want to in this next chapter of your hmm? um, architecture and real estate development people can expect to see some more concepts involving new music venues oh, yeah, mixed use on, yeah, 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 yeah 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 i got uh, that yeah i think i personally my my personal vision is that i think fountain square could be the entertainment the entertainment neighborhood in Indianapolis. It could be the place where we have great clubs, we have a gr great museums. I mean, you go a little further south from, you go down to tube, the tube space and, and what, what uh, Big Car is doing. I mean, it could be the entertainment nexus of Indianapolis, and we're real close. Uh, maybe, maybe one nice venue away or two, but it could be a place where you could go on any given fr Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and have the opportunity to see five or six different bands playing at different venues. And not regional bands or national, but local bands. Bands that are created here, that are part of the community and part of the scene. 
um, from all the different the, um, socioeconomic and ethnic groups of the city of Indianapolis. I think that's what I, that's what I envision. That's what I think would be wonderful. Um, and it would be a great place for people to live because they can walk to that. And it would be a great concept for the city of Indianapolis to have it there too. It gets it away from the convention traffic. It gets it, you know, that's convention traffic. That's that. This is a community that's dedicated to music and the arts. And I think that's that we could have that in Fountain Square and it would not be expensive and it would be really big for the city of Indianapolis because music is very important. And we really need to look back and embrace the past as it pertains to music in, in, in Indianapolis as well. We could have a great scene. We need to break a few bands. I mean, it'd be great if we broke three or four bands in the next few years. Um, but uh, it could be. I think we could have something really special. I love the album, the, our new group, Bless, with uh, Oreo Jones and Sirius. I have Black not heard it yet. I, I talked yeah. to Oreo. I was I'm trying to get a copy. Actually. It's yeah. I think you'll really like it. It's, it doesn't sound like anything else out there. And you know, Justin Vernon from Boney Vare. Yeah, they're on his label. And I think if we, I could see if we break a few like that. I'll tell you, Craig. Sean's a great guy. He too, is yeah. a great yeah. guy. One thing that's come on my radar recently, and I can't believe it, is. Bean Blossom, ground zero for bluegrass music, is mm -hmm. 30 miles south of where we're sitting right now. And it's just like... Josh has gotten to you. Right, yeah. And it's just like, so you could start to envision, I mean, it's almost like raw, you know, think about raw music, but jazz, bluegrass, I, I think, yeah, we have a situation here where we're right in the nexus of all that. We've got yeah. jazz, hip-hop. I mean, some of the... I've got a jazz album in here that's been sampled by a lot of hip-hop artists that was an Indianapolis jazz group. Yeah. Um, so we got jazz, hip-hop, bluegrass, alt-country, um, you get the Nashville influence, just straight-up blues from Chicago. Um, Otis Gibbs rock. is back in town. Otis is back in town, another great guy. Right. I really like Otis. I'm trying to get him on this. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the, the uh, um, it's, we're, and, and then if you think about it, we got some, we had some great rock and roll yep. come out of Indiana. Okay, so while we're... Guns and Roses, a few of those guys. While, while we're sitting here, this, again, this might be, I might say this, and you, I may get the, get the eye roll from you, but if you're, if you're, and I'm thinking of your son's generation, or your, your kid's generation, I should say, you can be here and be a part of the music scene or the music community, and it's so participatory. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, like I can't. I was fanboy when I moved here in 2001, and like when 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 Rob Dixon moved back to town, it was like, oh, Rob Dixon's back from New York. And a year later, I knew Rob Dixon. Like he would, <laughs> yeah. like he would actually talk to me. Yeah, he like, played, uh, played on Vess's out. We, well, yeah, yeah like yeah. so in like New York or Los Angeles, you probably wouldn't, or I wouldn't, you wouldn't approach that person because you'd be like, but here, it's almost like this. You can you can be of that community and know the artists oh, yeah. and know the people who are doing. Jared Jer Thompson. Right, oh my, you know, genius, genius. Brilliant saxophone player, not as good as Rob by his own admission, because Rob's like a... Different, a, unbelievable. yeah, Rob is, a, is But Jared's in a great composer. He and his brother are both incredibly gifted musicians. Just run into him. <laughs> hey, guys, how you doing? So, Jeez. yeah, that's, yeah, and, and Jared's a big proponent of Indianapolis. I mean, yeah. The, the, we have, and the, the other thing is we forgot about was the Pianist Association. Yeah, right, APA. Yeah, the APA. We have a lot, there is... An incredible diversity of music going yep. on in Indianapolis that is very interesting. And if you commingle those things all together and you put in Joyful Noises here in town, Secretly Canadians in Bloomington, I mean, they, there's a lot going on in the music industry in Indiana and almost centered around Indianapolis that we could be leveraging in a way that could be huge. And we just, we just forget about it. And we need to stop forgetting about it and start thinking about it more often. 
I do. I do sense. I think there's been a there. There is. We're starting to see a shift here in the last in the last few years, and you've been a big part of that. I mean, you've created these great spaces, you know, for people to come to. And yeah, I think I'm it's I'm an accommodate or what do you uh, what do you call it? There's accomplice? A, uh, no, an uh, accomplice. No, I just uh, um, uh, facilitator. There you right? go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I um, you know, it's funny. You, you this is funny. You. When, when I when I when I dropped the first ten episodes of this show, mm-hmm. you basically said, "Thank you, I enjoy your show. You might want to make it a little shorter, under an hour." <laughs> and the listeners, <laughs> yeah, right. but then the next after you said that, the next episode that I dropped was Ed Rudisell, oh, and God. I had to and I had to edit that down to get it to one forty. <laughs> but Ed, I'm gonna Ed, yeah, Ed, I I listened to that one. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that was intense. Ed, Ed is. Ed. But I learned a lot, right? I did I mean, too. I mean, yeah. I'll never use DoorDash again. I feel bad for using it. Right. Oh, good God. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, but anyway, it's it's great. It's great to talk to you. It's great to be here in your house. My, um, yeah. I got to show Helen this place because she'll just yeah, ever, she'll just guys, freak. I always freak tell out. people if you know me and you know where I live, if you're even driving by, just ring the doorbell. Come in. I I love it when people drop by. Um, Laurel and I dropped by. When we were walking home from the Blue Point to Laurel's place, and we dropped by at Vess and Kate's house and just rang the doorbell at like nine thirty at night, and they're like, "Whoa!" Yeah, but they're like, "Oh, it's so nice." You know, it's always I like it when people drop by. I think it's wonderful. Well, you're so you're. I, I appreciate your friendship, and you're an example of. Usually, my first impressions are pretty on point. With you, my first impression was 180 degrees wrong. Oh, really? Because I met you, I thought you were just an angry son of a bitch, and you are one of our greatest ambassadors for our city. Um, I just and I, I appreciate um, you know you you see things that need to be changed and you put your effort and your money behind it. And that's something that, especially mm-hmm. as I get older, I, I just have a real appreciation for. So yeah, I can be direct. That. I think that can be. Absolutely. Absolutely. But no, but you give, you give back and you're not, you're not just like throwing bombs. I mean, when you've got, when you, when you're telling say public officials that they need to pay attention, it's because you're personally involved. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. You've put it, you've put it on the line. So, and again, you know, uh, Fountain Square, you know, Fletcher Place, neighborhoods like that, are much different because of your work, and um, I and many others are incredibly grateful for that. So, yeah. thanks for thanks for spending time this afternoon. Awesome. Yeah.